El Fanboy, episode 33. Hi, everybody. Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 33rd edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How is everybody doing out there? Uh, it is certainly a crazy time to be alive, especially in the last 48 hours. I'd like to just send out my my thoughts and my, my prayers out to the folks involved in the Las Vegas shooting. Um, it's just unfathomable that this sort of stuff happens so frequently. And I'd also like to just acknowledge the passing of a rock and roll legend, Tom Petty, uh, yesterday. Um, just, you know, there, there's uh, there, there's a lot going on that, that there's just not a lot to be uh, happy about right now. But I'm here to help sort of distract you from that. So let's talk about what's going on in our in our little fanboy world of movies and superheroes where at least in that realm, the villains are fictional. And there's people in capes and, and, and costumes who can come and help us. All right. So, um, yeah, there's been uh, there's been some interesting developments late last week. Vulture published a, a very interesting report uh, about the behind the scenes happenings over at DC Entertainment. And I would like to just sort of open with that. And we're going to go kind of full fledged into a general Justice League discussion here, a DC Justice League discussion uh, along with a very exciting announcement at the tail end of it but let's start with vulture so it was very loaded and it was very insightful the piece if you have not yet read it look it up um, it's about how DC is basically changing up its approach um, you know it confirmed some things I've been telling you about on here for a while and it also revealed a DC entertainment that is desperate to create a clean break from the first wave of DCEU films. Uh, it draws a clear dividing line between Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and where the company is heading now. Which, by the way, it wants you to think that Wonder Woman is... Uh... Oh, you know, we'll get to that. <laughs> the company really wants you to believe that the Snyder era is over and that Jeff Johns is the savior who feels the same way that you did about those films and is now finally able to do something about it. Uh, he even went as far as to outright contradict the publicly stated reason for Joss Whedon's invitation to Justice League. If you'll recall, Zack Snyder spoke exclusively with The Hollywood Reporter back in May. And in that piece, where he officially stepped down and, and handed the reins over to Whedon, you know, they characterized the whole thing as if it was Snyder who contacted his friend, Joss Whedon, and asked him to help out. But now there's a quote from Johns where he says it was he and Diane Nelson who asked Whedon to help with the additional material required to get Justice League where they wanted it to be. So that's fascinating stuff, but you know it, it's clear. You know, they want you to be able to see and feel the clean break from the way things were. Um... That said, there were a couple of elements that I'd like to scrutinize a little bit 
uh, that came out of the vulture piece, if you will. We're going to cut through some of the uh, some of the spin, and uh, I'm going to hit you up with some facts here. Okay. So first of all, the, the, the Supergirl assertion that the piece opens up with was a little weird. Uh, the, the writer kind of goes on a little bit about uh, the Supergirl series on the CW network and, and how beloved Tyler Hoechlin's Superman is and how the show stands as this sort of stark contrast to how the way people feel about the movies. And sure, while that, while that might be true for fans of that show, uh, the show doesn't have that many fans. You know, it's, it's not this big show that has created this overriding movement, this opposing voice to the DCEU. Uh, Supergirl is this low-rated show that was bounced from the CBS network to the CW because it, the, the ratings did not justify it staying on CBS. And in general, it's not this, you know, it was just, it was, it was a weird sort of tangent for the writer to open on. You kind of get the sense that perhaps... He is a fan of Supergirl, and he really wants to put Tyler Hoechlin's Superman up on a pedestal. But it was just a weird place to start. Um, the other big thing that for me that was sort of a negative was, you know, I, I can't stress this enough, and this doesn't go to Vulture. This goes for the spin coming out of the company. You know, the people at Warner Brothers would love to have you believe that Wonder Woman is the first film of the Jeff Johns, Diane Nelson, John Berg era of DC Entertainment. Simply put, it is not. All right, the power structure at DC Entertainment didn't change until summer of 2016. Okay, Wonder Woman had already wrapped filming by that point. Wonder Woman's principal photography ran from November of 2015 to May of 2016. Johns didn't get the DC president job until July. Okay, that's two months later. That doesn't mean we can't give him credit for helping make Wonder Woman what it was, you know, with his uncredited work as a writer on the script and the way he collaborated with director Patty Jenkins. As I've said before, it looks like Zack Snyder, who was firmly in the driver's seat of the DCEU at the time, was knee deep in post-production for Batman v Superman. So Jeff Johns was tasked with overseeing Wonder Woman. And as we all saw, that worked out brilliantly. But this narrative that's been pushed ever since Wonder Woman came out, that it's the first film of the new era, is totally inaccurate. And it certainly wasn't the plan going into it. So it's really one of those things where a beautiful accident took place, and Warner Brothers wants to take credit for it. They had no idea Batman v Superman was going to fall on its face the way it did, or that Wonder Woman would be the runaway success it was. But now they're trying to act like they knew it all along, and this was the plan. But you can't erase facts. Wonder Woman was made under the old regime and just happened to be great. And it's now going to be the blueprint for where they go from here. But that wasn't the original plan. Uh, speaking of the plan, I've got some bochinche for you. It, it's one of the reasons I had to put my special... Uh, ben Affleck L fanboy event on hold and I'll have to wait a bit before I can give you further detail but for now <clears throat> all I can do is allude to the fact that in terms of DC's plans moving forward you guys might be shocked who stays and who goes you may be blindsided about which director or directors are currently looking to recast characters that are in 
Justice League and to learn how standalone future DC films are going to be. I'm going to leave that there because I really can't say much more than that at this time. But, you know, that was another big part of the Vulture piece. You know, Nelson had a quote that got a lot of tongues wagging. She said, um, our intention, certainly moving forward, is using the continuity to help make sure nothing is diverging in a way that doesn't make sense. But there's no insistence upon an overall storyline or interconnectivity in that universe. Then Johns used Wonder Woman as an example of the new template. He said, the movie's not about another movie. Some of the movies do connect the characters together, like Justice League. But like with Aquaman, our goal is to connect Aquaman. Uh, our goal is to not connect Aquaman to every movie. Then Nelson puts it as, moving forward, you'll see the DC movie universe being a universe, but one that comes from the heart of the filmmaker who's creating them. And boy, oh boy, do they mean that. Um, but look, you know, if you'll recall, it was only two weeks ago that I pointed out that Warner Brothers was going this way. While many thought, myself included, initially, that Johns was being installed as a sort of, uh, like the Kevin Feige of the DCEU. <clears throat> Jeez, I got, I got like the plague in my throat today, but we're going to power through here. Um, you know, while, while everyone kind of thought he might be the Kevin Feige, where he'd have all, you know, the final creative say over everything and every director they hire has to adhere to his overall direction for the universe, I pointed out that Warner Brothers is very much going to stick to their director-driven approach. I told you that they're going to put the films on their own islands where the directors can hire, uh, where the, 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 the directors they hire can really explore their individual mythologies and that the connections between them were going to loosen a great deal. And that the only real change moving forward was that Zack Snyder wouldn't be in the driver's seat anymore. And now here we are, and a week later, Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson told Vulture exactly that. Um, but that wasn't all they said either. You know, they also confirmed that they'd be making some multiverse movies. You know, they confirmed the existence of that Joker movie that's going to be set completely outside of the DCEU continuity. And they said they'd make a formal announcement about this Elseworld-type movie situation they have coming up in the near future. So, you know, what's the takeaway here, folks? What's the takeaway? Look, uh, you've got to hand it to Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment. You know, they're going to stick to their guns. They want to make films that are more high-minded, more original, more artistic, Films that have that element of prestige for them. An element that Marvel films never have. So rather than go the producer-driven direction, like Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm, they're looking to do something that's actually closer to what the X-Men Cinematic Universe is doing over at Fox. They're going to worry less about world-building, less about creating a shared universe, and more about just creating great movies that connect with audiences in a more primal way. Just as Fox wants Logan and Deadpool to be what the future of the XCU is about and to wash away the sour taste of X-Men Apocalypse and some of the other previous uh, X-Universe misfires, Warner Brothers wants Wonder Woman to be what the DCEU is about and wash away the sour taste of Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad. 
The big difference is, you know, Warner Brothers has a much stronger track record than Fox does. Warner Brothers has produced some of the finest superhero films of all time. Superman the movie, Batman 1989, and The Dark Knight. Even Man of Steel, which was a misfire for me personally, it can't be denied that it had an air of prestige about it. With that killer cast, you know, Amy Adams, Kevin Costner, Russell Crowe, Lawrence Fishburne, Diane Lane, and with Christopher Nolan's name plastered on every billboard, Man of Steel had that big movie feel. So Warner Brothers and their DC properties, they have considerable clout and track record when it comes to making prestigious genre-redefining films. So for now, we'll just have to wait and see. Is the loosely connected filmmaker-driven approach going to work? Or should they have arrived at this fork in the road and gone towards the producer-driven television-esque model that's working so well for Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm? Only time will tell. But, um, you know, something that I'd kind of like to emphasize here too is let's let this vulture piece be the end of discussing the the behind-the-scenes happenings at uh, DC Entertainment. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to turn the page. Let's just focus on the fact that Justice League is coming out in a little over a month, and let's get excited about that. At this point, the film is going to be whatever it's going to be. So I, for one, am done analyzing what's going into it. I'm, I'm going to treat it like, like a hot dog, you know, because you never want to ask what's actually in a hot dog or what goes into making one. So I'm ready for Justice League to be my cinematic Frankfurter. Bring on the fixins, okay? And, and Empire Magazine, by the way, did that this week. They, you know, they brought on the fixins. They unveiled their official preview for the film, and it's filled with hype and well-rehearsed talking points. It does exactly what it sets out to do. Sell the movie. Have you guys seen it? I don't know if you've seen the, the, the you know, the certain elements of the piece have already gone online and other sites have covered it and includes some great pictures, awesome like artwork, great like soundbite quotes for the masses to share to quell fears of all the behind the scenes drama, great optimism for the final product. And I don't mind any of that. It's time to unleash the hype machine. So let's enjoy it. You know, because it's interesting to me the sort of turnaround that I've had. Um, you know, for Man of Steel, I, I, you know, I had like a love-hate relationship with its development because right from the beginning, I was, I was upset that Snyder got the job. You know, I, I, I didn't care much for Watchmen um, 300 while I thought was a cool, faithful adaptation of the Frank Miller book, didn't really do much for me. You know, it was great eye candy, but it didn't really connect with me on any sort of, you know, uh, emotional level. Um, really, the only movie of his that I had enjoyed prior to that was Dawn of the Dead. And, you know, so hearing about him directing it kind of put me up in arms. But knowing that he would be sticking to a script that came from Christopher Nolan, shepherding it, written by Jonathan Nolan... And David Goyer and that whole sort of Dark Knight brain trust, you know, it kept me cautiously optimistic. And then when I saw Trailer 3, which I've spoken about probably a thousand times, when I saw Trailer 3, my hype went through the roof. 
I showed everyone in any sort of proximity to me trailer three and told them, you guys have to see this movie. It looks like it's going to be amazing. I, I'm, I, I probably pulled over my mailman and said, you need to look at this while he was delivering my mail. I was making everyone watch trailer three because for me, trailer three looked like this could be the perfect Superman movie. Um, so, I, you know, so in other words, I went from uh, to, yeah, bring it on. And then the movie came out. I saw it three times to give it a fair shot and liked it less each time I saw it. Um, so much so that when Batman v Superman was announced and the trailer started to come out, I actively said, you know what? I'm not going to see this. I'm going to I'm going to rebel against this. They're not getting my money. I'm going to skip Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, despite the fact that on some level I've been waiting my whole life to see Superman and Batman on the big screen and now they're adding Wonder Woman in there. Yeah, this is how it was, you know, the information was coming into me as the film was in development. I mean, you know, now they're adding Wonder Woman, they're adding Doomsday, there's a new Lex Luthor. There's all these elements that in theory should be getting me so excited. But I just I, I couldn't I couldn't go there. You know, uh, Snyder had let me down so badly with Man of Steel. And some of the comments he made about, you know, where he attempted to address the issues had with Man of Steel left such a bitter taste in my mouth that I really thought, I'm not going to see this movie at all. And then ultimately, I had to. It became a professional assignment. Kelvin Chavez over at Latino Review paid for the ticket. He wanted me to go see it. He wanted me to write about it, make a video review. And I said, all right, fine, I'll do it as a professional assignment. But I'm still as a fan rebelling. <laughs> I didn't want to see it. With Justice League, though, you know, despite everything we've heard, despite all the things that went into making this hot dog, um, I I want to see it. I really do. Um, and I have a, there's an announcement that I'm going to get to in just a moment about seeing the movie and how you guys can be a part of it. But before I do, I, I do want to throw in a quick note about the promotion for this movie. Um, you know, a lot of people who are very short-sighted, who clearly don't even, they can't remember as far back as like, I don't know, four months ago, uh, are, are starting to complain that the film isn't being promoted. And there are people sort of trying to draw all these deep conclusions for why they're not promoting it. Are they not promoting it because they're not proud of it? Do they think it's going to be a dud and they don't want anyone to see it? Uh, no. Guys, pay fucking attention, will you? Wonder Woman did the same thing. Wonder Woman, everyone was complaining in like, you know, uh, April and May. There was this big overriding sense of where's the hype? Wonder Woman's coming out in, in early June and I'm not seeing anything on it. Hell, I even said that. I'm like, what is going on here? Maybe they're not proud of it. And yeah, I, everyone was starting to draw conclusions and I was part of that. But then what did they do? At like the For the latter half of May, in those final two or three weeks, that's when they pushed hard. You know, they waited for, um, they waited for Guardians of the Galaxy to come out. They waited till a lot of the other things that could distract had come out. And then suddenly when the focus could be completely on Wonder Woman, they hit it hard with commercials and posters and billboards and, you know, everything. And look how that turned out. Wonder Woman is this huge success story. 
critically loved box office numbers through the roof. So clearly Warner Brothers knows what it's doing. And right now they're in a position where they have to promote Blade Runner. They know that Marvel is going to put out Thor Ragnarok, uh, you know, what, two weeks before Justice League comes out. So they know that there, right now the landscape is somewhat crowded. On top of that, let's not forget Stephen King's It, which is still doing magnificently, is a Warner Brothers production. Let's not forget that Blade Runner 2049, which is you know about to open and hopefully does really well and has all this positive buzz critically, is also a Warner Brothers production. So they don't want to cannibalize attention away from their own other properties. They want these movies to be able to do really well without now clouding people's judgment and making them instead of, you know, instead of perhaps giving Blade Runner their money, if all they see now is a blitz for Justice League, maybe they'll just save their money for Justice League. They don't want to give any distractions. They want to wait until their movies come out. They want to wait until Thor Ragnarok, the primary competitor, comes out. And then they're going to hit you fuckers really hard. So, guys, anyone complaining about the Justice League promotion is clueless. All right? Just look at the model they adapted for Wonder Woman and say no more. Question no more. There's going to be a ton of Justice League hype in the coming weeks. So just chill. Now, um... Time for the big announcement. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, then you probably you know saw this la- you know yesterday. But just in case you didn't, I'm putting together an official L fanboy watch party of Justice League on opening night, November seventeenth. Uh, myself and whatever New York area supporters want to join in, we're gonna go see Justice League at AMC Fresh Meadows in Queens, New York. Um, I'm going to put more details about that online. I'm also going to give you guys my PayPal information so that you could prepay for your tickets. I'm still waiting to see, because basically I'm going to buy the tickets. That way I can make sure we all get the seats together because it's one of those theaters that has the assigned seating. So what's going to happen is when Warner Brothers finally announces when tickets are going on sale, I'm going to give you guys a deadline for when you can send in the money. The tickets are going to be $18.59 a pop at this theater. That's just what they charge. Hey, it's 2017. Those are the prices. So I'm going to give you guys a deadline so that the morning of, I'm going to go and buy as many tickets as you guys have reserved. Maybe that means we buy an entire row. Maybe it means we buy the entire theater. But I'm going to make it my responsibility the very moment the tickets go on sale to buy as many seats as I can based on what you guys have PayPal'd me. Um, So yes, and on top of that, it looks like it might even be like a joint event, a joint venture, because I also contacted my other Queens area fanboy podcasters, the Medium Popcorn Podcast, and Brandon and Justin are very, uh, very down to do this. So we're gonna do a little cross promotion so that Medium Popcorn listeners can also get in on the fun. And for those of you who, you know, are, are intrigued by the guest list, so far it looks like myself, it looks like Kelvin Chavez, the founder of Latino Review and editor-in-chief of The Splash Report, will be there. It sounds like Brandon Collins and Justin Brown of Medium Popcorn Podcast will be there. 
and even my old buddy Jeremy Scully from uh, the old uh, LRM days, who we used to write those great, um, you know, we used to do those features together, the MFR and Scully features with the Fantasy Fridays, and you know, he used to be the comic book reviewer for LRM. Uh, really good dude and a longtime friend of mine. Scully will be on hand as well. And what we're thinking too is <clears throat> literally beside the theater is a Hooters location. So we're going to set it up so that prior to the movie, we can all meet up there, have some wings and beers together, sort of pregame before the movie. You don't have to do that part. That part will be optional for you. But that will be what the night is comprised of. So come join us November 17th for the official Justice League watch party brought to you by El Fanboy and uh, possibly sort of co-sponsored or co-run you know, co by Medium Popcorn Podcast and uh, the Splash Report. All right, it's going to be a real fun fanboy gathering and uh, I'd love to meet some of you. So anyone, you know, any New York area supporters, be sure to, you could tweet at me, you could DM me. Uh, keep an eye out at lfanboy.com. I'm going to keep that up to date with uh, this Justice League watch party. But, um, all right, let's get into the week's news. Now, before we get into the week's box office, at the top of the show, I address some of the... Um, some of the sadness that's going on in the world, I do want to acknowledge one of my longtime listeners and supporters, Tavo Borrego, who's currently in Puerto Rico. Uh, he finally reached out to us after several days of silence, I assume because of the lack of power, and let us know that he's doing all right. So Tavo, thank you so much for that update. Just know we're all here pulling for you and the family. I hope you can get out of there soon and get over to your new home in, uh, in North Carolina. Um... And yeah, anyone out there listening in, in PR in some way, uh, just know that you're in my thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican and it's, it's, very, uh, it's very hard to see all the, all the visuals and images coming out of the island and to read all the news of what's happening over there. And I have a lot of family there myself who thankfully are also doing all right uh, considering the circumstances. But I did just want to acknowledge uh, Tavo because he's, you know, he's been uh, a real rock here and um, I hope you're doing all right, Double. But okay, so this weekend at the box office was quite fascinating, wasn't it? Um, it was basically like a three-way tie, and each you know, the, the the three top-grossing films were only separated by around a few hundred thousand dollars. It was very very close. Uh, we're talking about a difference of maybe two hundred and sixty thousand dollars, you know, dividing up the movies. But let's have a little analysis here because there was definitely uh, there's some subplots here. So last week they were saying that Kingsman: The Golden Circle would come in at number one with a fifty percent drop. I told them that they were on crack for thinking that they were going to have that little bit of a drop. And I was right. The film actually tumbled about 57%. It still is number one, but not by much. Um, Kingsman Golden Circle takes the top spot with 16.9. Uh, you know, I, I should give the whole thing since they're so close, I can't even do, use the points. So uh, Kingsman Golden Circle came in with 16,935,565 uh, 57% drop 
Um, in second place was it with 16,902,442. So that's literally what? 33,000 bucks separating them. And in third place was new arrival, uh, Tom Cruise, American made, which made $16,776,390. Now there's a couple things here that I really want to try to hammer home. Um, Kingsman Golden Circle was never going to drop just 50%. The word of mouth was not going to be kind to that film. And now, even though it opened up a little more, you know, it opened up a little bit higher than the first Kingsman. It is now already begun to lag behind, not by much, but it is starting to lag behind by a million bucks. And that divide is going to get bigger and bigger now. Um, you know, a after 10 days, Kingsman, the secret service had made 67,926,972. So you could pretty much round that up to 68 mil. Uh, after 10 days, Kingsman, the Golden Circle is making 66,637,153 bucks. So it's it's short by a little, by about 1.3 million. And we're going to watch that continue to grow. Um, and just by, just to sort of compare and contrast, you know, studios always want their, their sequels to, in theory, do bigger and better and to help sort of expand the base. Well... Right now, there's another sequel that did just that, uh, Annabelle. So even though it's a prequel, but you know what I mean, the, the, the next follow-up in the franchise. The first Annabelle, after 52 days, had made $83.9 million. This new one, Annabelle Creation, has made $101.6 million. See, that's the kind of thing that studios want to see. Uh, Kingsman Golden Circle is already heading on the negative end of that trend. And really going on the negative end of that trend is the Lego Ninjago movie. Ninjago, Ninjago, whatever the fuck. Um, look, after 10 days, the first Lego film had made $130 million. After 10 days, Lego Ninjago movie has made $35 million. So that the franchise is now sort of on life support, um, which is funny because it, it did start off so big, but it seems to be collapsing quietly like a flan in a cupboard. Um, as for it, uh, you know, I actually had a chance to see it last Friday with my wife and we had a great time. Uh, we didn't understand why you know, people were saying that it's not scary. We were pretty damn scared. Um, I had a technical issue at my theater, which sort of prevented me from like getting as into it as I could. There was something up with the projector. Things were a little blurred. The colors seemed a little bit off. It was really hard to make out anything that happened in the dark scenes. And, you know, a lot happens in darkness in that movie. So even aside from that, even with those technical issues in mind, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I would give it a strong B plus, um, and I get what the hype is about. Now, I want to spend a little time here, though, on American Made. I know I've already sort of ranted about this on Twitter, and I'm going to keep it concise, but this hatred of Tom Cruise, this desire by the media to just mock and deride and try to belittle him, it's really sort of, it's unbelievable to witness. This film was treated like shit by the media heading into the weekend. 
um, with negative headlines about how it's going to be a second dud for Tom Cruise this year. And it's flying low and it's all this, you know, basically making it seem like this is a big turkey. And they compare it to other Tom Cruise movies. The problem is that comparison is bullshit. Because this isn't like other Tom Cruise movies. Typically, he does sort of big genre fare. This is not that. American Made has more in common with The Wolf of Wall Street or more in common with War Dogs, where it's these sort of like, you know, loosely based on true events, sort of crime tales that aren't action spectacles, that are really sort of character studies on these weird sort of scoundrel men playing fast and loose with the laws. It's that sort of movie. This is not a Jack Reacher. This is not a Mission Impossible. This is not even a freaking Oblivion. You know, this is not anything like what he's been doing, especially like The Mummy. It is not a genre effects-driven movie. This is a movie aimed at adults, which has way more in common with prestigious adult sort of true story movies than anything else Tom Cruise has done in a very long time. And by those standards, American Made did just fucking fine. 16.7 million is very respectable. You know why? Because The Wolf of Wall Street, which had Leonardo DiCaprio in it, which was directed by Martin fucking Scorsese, who I love Doug Lyman, but Doug Lyman, who directed American Made, is not Marty Scorsese. All right? Wolf of Wall Street had all this stuff working in its favor. It opened to 18 million bucks. All right? War Dogs, which is nowhere near on the level of Wolf of Wall Street, but like I said, it's similar in this genre, opened to, I think it was like 14 million. So American Made made in between that little range there. If we're going to look at recent examples of these kinds of movies. So American Made, by those standards, was a success. And there's something else that the websites that analyze this stuff don't want to point out. American Made was on a thousand fewer screens than Kingsman the Golden Circle. So Kingsman Golden Circle won the weekend by a very narrow margin with a huge advantage. Kingsman Golden Circle was in 4,038 screens. American Made was in 3,024. That's a thousand fewer. That's a huge deal. If had American Made been in as many theaters as Kingsman was and on as many screens, there's no doubt it would have won the weekend. But it's not that kind of thing. They weren't going for that huge, wide, crazy release. They know that this thing is going to live or die on the backs of grown-ups. Grown-ups who don't rush out on opening weekend. Grown-ups who they read the reviews, they make informed decisions, who they've grown up watching Tom Cruise, and they're interested in the drug war thing. Like this thing is probably going to have some decent legs. Now, listen, yeah, I might be wrong. Maybe next week is going to take a huge tumble. But American Made is one of these films that was designed to have legs and be around for a while. So anyone shitting on this movie, anyone sort of mocking it, anyone, you know, oh, it opened at third place. What a turkey. Like you have to look at all these outside factors. So I really chalk it up to the fact that it's just fun to pile on Tom Cruise. It's fun to hate him. He's got the Scientology thing. He makes it easy for you to want to try to knock him down a peg. But American Made, by most reasonable, rational standards, did 
a very nice job, and it's probably going to do considerably well in the weeks to come, especially when you factor in foreign totals where you know Tom Cruise is still a big deal in the foreign markets. Um, then in fourth place, there was the Lego Ninja Go movie, which made $11.6 million. That's a 43% tumble from last week. And that one is on even more screens than Kingsman's on. That one's on 4,047 screens. And it's still dropping like a turd. In fifth place was the other new arrival, which tanked, tanked, tanked. Flatliners made $6.5 million in its opening weekend. Um, the film only cost $19 million, so that kind of helps offset things a tad, I would say. But, dude, the reviews were horrendous. For a very long time, The, film, the it was at 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. So this, you know, this Flatliners movie is flatlining. It is, it is a non-entity and it is going to vanish. Uh, speaking of non-entities that are vanishing, Mother has dropped all the way down to 10th place. It made 1.4 million. Uh, it is now already only on 1,840 screens. It is basically getting phased out rather quickly from the conversation. Um, other bits of news this week, you know, while we're on the subject of, of Lyman and Tom Cruise, uh, Lyman's already looking forward to Edge of Tomorrow Part 2, and he, he offered a brief update on the status of that sequel. He said, Tom and Emily Blunt and I are really excited to go do it. We have a script. We're just trying to find a time to schedule it between my schedule and Emily's and Tom's. But it's one of those things where it's a sequel whose origins come from the best possible place, which is, it's not a studio saying, hey, we think we can make some more money. Let's just stamp out another one. This sequel originated with fans of the original film who continually came up to Tom and myself and Emily and told us how much they loved the movie and we <clears throat> and would we ever consider a sequel. And enough people said that to me and to Tom and to Emily and we finally sat down and said, what would a sequel even look like? We ended up with Chris McQuarrie coming up with a great story. So, hell, that's very, very encouraging, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? When a sequel comes from that sort of thing, when it comes from fan outpouring of support, when it comes from the core nucleus of the people who created the film, saying, all right, so what sort of story do we want to tell? There was not a studio banging down their door begging for part two. So they're making part two because they want to, because they're inspired, and because the fans fucking want it. Now that is a great, you know, a great place to start from when you're building a sequel. Um... And speaking of like building from a good place, this Halloween remake continues to kind of stay on my radar. I mean, I, I called it a remake. I'm a putz. This continuation of the Halloween franchise that is essentially going to ignore the Rob Zombie films, that is going to ignore the later sequels. There's some more news on that front now. Uh, Judy Greer, who I know best from Arrested Development, but she's been in so many other things. It looks like she's going to be joining the cast. She is going to play Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, Laurie Strode's daughter. And uh, you know what? Bring it on. I really like me some Judy Greer. I like that this film has some buzz around it. I love that John Carpenter was on hand to offer script notes. I love that they're trying to get him to score the film. And with each passing week, 
I just continue to get more and more excited about a true follow-up to Halloween, a true Halloween three. Um, although some people have said, I think it's an interesting idea that instead of making it Halloween three, let's even ignore the hospital one. And I'm like, mm. but it's an interesting idea because if you really, if, if you instead choose to pick up from Halloween one, where there's that moment at the end there where Laurie looks out the window and he's gone, then that kind of gives you a more blank open slate for what happened next. So, you know, I, I kind of would like, I would like to have the hospital one part two be part of Canon because Captain you know, Carpenter was part of that one too. So I would very much like that one to remain in Canon, but if they do decide that they're going to basically jump from Halloween one and then make this one like a true Halloween two, I guess that wouldn't suck either. Uh, speaking of sort of long range sequels, there's a lot of those coming by the way, for those of you paying attention, I'm actually uh, working on a piece for that for IGN. Uh, long range sequels, Glass has officially entered production. Glass is going to be the long awaited sequel to Unbreakable. It's the film that was teased somewhat by the smash hit from earlier this year. Um, what the hell? Split. M. Night Shyamalan's recent horror flick, Split, sort of planted the seeds for that film being within the Unbreakable universe. And Glass, as of yesterday, officially went into production. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan, he, he tweeted out an image of the clipboard for it. And it looks like October 2nd is the official start date for Glass. So guys, get excited for that. And it really is interesting, though, with all these long-range sequels. Films that are looking to continue things that you know we haven't really seen from in decades. You know, Glass is a sequel to Unbreakable, which is 17 years old at this point, I believe. It's crazy. Is that true? My God. I'm getting old. Um, then, you know, there's going to be Top Gun 2. Uh, James Cameron and Tim Miller are going to make their Terminator film as if it's a, it's like the true Terminator three kind of just ignoring all the other ones. And you know, that, that means that that film is going to be almost like, I don't know how many years is that? 28 years since Terminator two judgment day. When, by the time this one comes out, um, yeah, long range sequels are starting to be a thing. And of course, the big one on everyone's mind is Blade Runner 2049. That finally is coming out. It's coming out on Friday. And it's uh, the buzz is palpable, folks. The positive buzz. The, the uh, Last week I read to you the sort of, you know, late breaking, fresh, hot off the presses uh, little bites that were coming onto the internet of people who had seen it and what they thought of it. Now, fast forward to a week later, the embargo has lifted. I'm not reading any reviews because I'm told that this film, knowing anything about it is a disservice to the wonderful story they've crafted. So I'm not reading any reviews, but in terms of aggregate scores, there are 63 reviews in and 59 of them are positive. It's got a 94% ranking on Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus seems to be visually stunning and narratively satisfying. Blade Runner 2049 deepens and expands its predecessor's story while standing as an impressive filmmaking achievement in its own right. Something that just jumped out at me, by the way, uh, just from some of the bites that are on there, the little, the little clips that they put of the reviews, is like how contradictory they are. 
You know, a lot of them praise the film as being incredibly original and ingenious and really being able to stand on its own and bringing some new things to the mythology while still honoring what's come before it. And then one of the handful of negative ones says, and I quote, there's not an original thing in this movie. I'm like, oh, how the hell could two people see such completely different things in the same movie? Most people are saying it's so original, it's so this, it's so that. And then, you know, one of the handful of negative ones says that it's basically not original in any way, shape or form. Um, I can't wait to see it myself. I'm going to have to wait for the weekend. I was going to try to do a Thursday night preview screening, but I have to work. So I will not be able to do that. Uh, I still want to see Blade Runner, the uh, the original again. It's been so long and I want to try to go into this one with an, with an understanding of what came before it. Um, so I'm going to try to make time to see that before I go see this. Um, and in terms of like long range now, what's coming on after Blade Runner, you know, I'm, I'm looking right to November. I'm looking right to Thor Ragnarok and Justice League and looking at where my hype levels are at. And just to sort of give you guys an update on where my hype levels are at, um, I have a feeling that Thor Ragnarok is going to be the better film. But that said, I'm more excited about Justice League. Just because I'm a DC guy, I love these characters, regardless of all the behind-the-scenes turmoil. There's too much writing on this movie for me. I need to see this. I cannot wait. There's an urgency. I wish the movie was out today so I can go see it. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of analyzing it. I'm tired of all this, the ins and outs of this movie. I want to just sit down and see it already. Um, that said, if I were to divorce myself of that, you know, I, I am very optimistic that Thor Ragnarok is going to be a great experience, a very different kind of experience. But I, I, I do think that Taika Waititi, um, <laughs> Has, uh, has created something very special. It looks like it's going to be a very great, uh, very fun ride. So while rationally, I have a feeling Thor Ragnarok is, is where my, my, my mind should be, my heart says, no, bring on the Justice League. And uh, something else that came out late last week that is perhaps adding to my hype for that picture was that interesting story that broke about Danny Elfman bringing back in some sort of classic DC musical themes into the score for Justice League. Uh, Just in case those of you missed it somehow, uh, he alluded to the fact that, you know, there might be a moment in there that that sort of references his Batman 1989 theme. Because I don't know if you guys remember this. I mean, listen, I... It's a whole new generation. I can't just assume that everyone, you know, grew up in the 80s like I did. Uh, for you young folks out there, you know, Danny Elfman scored the first Batman movie. And he gave it, you know, th- this iconic score that followed the character for the next eight years of its cinematic life, that franchise, as well as the cartoons, you know, Batman the Animated Series. And there's talk that he's going to bring some of that theme into this one in some way, shape, or form. Uh, And then the big one for me was he even is going to throw in a bit of a reference to the John Williams Superman theme. Now, 
I know that that was a bit of a divisive point of contention. Uh, some folks are really up in arms about that. But if you really look into it, you know, what he had to say makes it sound like he's not necessarily going to just do like the full fledged thing. You know, he's not going to like have that that entire fanfare play. What he's going to do is he's going to somehow reference it. He's going to do something kind of like, you know, working it into the score um, without exactly playing the theme. And he's going to use it during a strategic point in the film, perhaps where we're first seeing Superman for the first time and sort of wondering where his allegiance lies. You understand? So it's going to be an interesting sort of way to sort of, you know, tweak his uh, our expectations for the character. You know, he, here's the exact quote where he, you know, he references it. He says, um, you know, he had two, he, he references, you know, uh, that he he had two minutes where he had the pleasure of saying, let's do the John Williams Superman. And for that, me was heaven. And for me, that was heaven, he says, because now I have a melody to twist and I'm using it. In, in an actually very dark way, in a dark moment. It's the kind of thing that some fans will notice, some won't. It's a moment where we're really not sure whose side he's on. So see, to me, that's exciting. You know, to me, it sounds like it's not even going to hit you over the head with it. He said some fans might not even pick up on it. So for someone like me, I'm definitely going to pick up on it. And that's going to make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I mentioned on Twitter that, you know, I have a theory about why they're doing this, about why there seems to be this move towards incorporating those themes. And earlier, you know, when Joss Whedon was just getting started on the reshoots, we saw pictures of what looked like a live action replica of the uh, Super Friends Hall of Justice. And I feel like what they're trying to do very wisely is they're trying to maximize profitability, right? They want this movie to connect with mainstream wide fans of all, you know, ilks of, of various generations. And what's one key way, one easy way to accomplish that nostalgia. And listen, you know, I know nostalgia makes some people roll their eyes. People felt that star Wars, the force awakens was overly nostalgic, but you know what? It works to get people excited, to tug at the heartstrings, to make them remember why they fell in love with these characters to begin with. And so I feel like they're trying to pivot Justice League. You know, Justice League originally was going to be sort of the culmination of the first round of DC films that came from the new era. But instead, now they're pivoting it towards more into like the culmination of many, many years of DC's legacy. You know, it's going to celebrate DC in general now. By incorporating the old themes, it's kind of a way to bring in anyone who's ever loved these characters. So them playing the nostalgia card, if they're going to, I think is a, it's smart. It's somewhat cynical. You know, it's, uh, I could look at it another way and say, listen, they know they have a flawed movie, so they need to try to pad it out with some nostalgia because you know, nostalgia tends to cloud people's judgments on films. Sometimes even if a movie kind of sucks, if it reminds them of something they once loved, suddenly they like the movie more. So, you know, the cynic in me says, you know, they're also doing that. They're, they're throwing in some nostalgia to counteract the fact that the film is going to be somewhat flawed. 
Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to go there. I want to emphasize the fact that I think it's pretty damn cool and very damn acceptable of Danny Elfman uh, and Joss Whedon to be bringing some classic DC melodies into the score and to sort of enhance some of you know DC's legacy up until this point. Hell, I, I would even say you know Elfman had a hand in the score of the Flash TV series on CBS way back when. If he could somehow work that melody in there too for the Flash, you know, then then it really sort of hits the point home that Justice League is a celebration of all things DC. And, you know, I don't think that's a bad move at all. And if you do, I think you're missing the bigger picture. Um, just a quick note on, you know, uh, television things. Uh, you know, The Gifted premiered this week and it got people talking. People are excited. Uh, it had the, uh, you know, it was directed by Brian Singer. And it has some connections to the films in a way. Um, you know, right now they've been very sort of vague about that. So depending on who you speak to, it either is in the same continuity as the films. And that's why they got Brian Singer. And then some people say it's completely its own thing. But uh, I got to tell you, I'm actually interested in this. I hope it does well. I didn't see the I didn't see the premiere. So if you guys did, let me know what you thought. But just based on the trailers and just based on some of the buzz around it, I'm definitely interested. So I hope it does leg out a season or two and then I could check it out uh, later on. Um, but yeah, so the Gifted premiered. I, I want to know what you guys thought of that. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to wrap things up today with my, with my uh, recommendation. Uh, my recommendation is a 2004 film that I'm not sure how many people saw. You know, it wasn't a huge, a huge runaway film. And I feel like it kind of, to a certain extent, went under the radar considering the talent involved in the picture. And that is collateral. You know, all this stuff going on with Tom Cruise lately has had me thinking about Tom Cruise and, you know, who I'm a fan of and films of his that I don't think got the proper attention they deserved. And Collateral is a special film. You know, it's him. It's Jamie Foxx. It's, you know, it's a Jamie Foxx who was coming off of Ray, by the way. Um, you know, Ray had, had come out and made him this prestigious actor uh, a little earlier on in October of 2004. And Collateral came out two months later. So you had this perfect moment there where Jamie Foxx is becoming this household name for being a gifted actor. You had Tom Cruise still sort of doing his thing. You had Michael Mann, the director of Heat and so many other great films all coming together to make this film. And uh, I just, I, I, I don't think it got its due. So if you have never seen Collateral, it's a very interesting film. It also even has Mark Ruffalo in it, like pre-superstardom Mark Ruffalo. It's got Jada Pinkett Smith. It's got Peter Berg, who I really like. Um... Just overall, a good, tense film takes place over the course of one long, crazy night where essentially, well, you know, I'll, I'll read you the, uh, the official thing. A taxi driver is unexpectedly taken on the ride of his life in this stylish thriller from acclaimed director Michael Mann. Max is a cab driver who hopes to someday open his own limo company. One night behind the wheel begins promisingly when he picks up Annie, 
Jada Pinkett Smith. An attorney working with the federal government who is attractive, friendly, and gives him her business card after paying her fare. Max thinks his luck is getting even better when his next fare, Vincent, offers him several hundred dollars in cash if he'll be willing to drop him off, wait, and pick him up at five different spots over the course of the evening. Max agrees, but he soon realizes Vincent isn't just another guy with errands to run. Vincent is an assassin who has been paid to murder five people who could put the leaders of a powerful drug trafficking ring behind bars in an upcoming trial. As circumstances force Max to do Vincent's bidding, the cabbie has to find a way to prevent Vincent from killing again and save his own skin, a task that becomes especially crucial when he discovers Annie is one of the names on Vincent's hit list. Uh, it's just it's just a great, sort of tense, crazy movie. Um, and for fans of the late, great Chris Cornell, you know, Michael Mann went through this phase there at the turn of the century where he was uh, kind of all over Chris Cornell. He used him in, you know, he used a song from Audio Slave in this movie. He used a, a song from Audio Slave when he did that cinematic uh, adaptation of Miami Vice. Um, so, you know, eagle eared listeners uh, who like Chris Cornell, there's this interesting, very sort of starkly different moment in Collateral where Chris Cornell gets to shine, where a, a, an audio slave song plays. And uh, it's just it's just pretty cool. So um, if you get a chance, check out Collateral. That is this week's uh, recommendation. And for now, guys, that is it for me. And until next week, adios. <laughs>